Um, the ambulance waiting times, um, and that has been uh, causing a lot of concern um, both in England, well, in England, Wales, uh, Scotland, and uh, Northern Ireland. And um, then we shall talk about, uh, from 8.15 a.m. onwards, about uh, Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister's uh, five promises. So we shall have a discussion about those five promises and what uh, they mean uh, for all of us. So um, do join in those discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. As is the norm, we start the uh, morning show by talking about the headlines bearing in the newspapers um, uh, this morning. So uh, no prizes for guessing what leads the way on most of uh, UK's front pages this morning. So last night's ITV interview uh, with Prince Harry is actually um, uh, been dominating the headlines. The Daily Mail focuses on the prince's remarks about his wife Meghan, notably his comment that his family was complicit in the pain and suffering she has endured. The Mail interpreted that as him saying his family helped drive out Meghan while the paper's columnist Richard Kay says Princess Diana would have appalled at Princess Harry's petty vindictiveness. The prince's remarks that he didn't think the royal family was racist, but that a comment speculating on the skin tone of his and Meghan's then unborn child was probably unconscious bias, caught the attention of much of UK's press. Alongside a picture of, Heg- of um, Meghan and Harry, the Daily Express leads on the story inserting the word finally into the headline. Prince Harry probably didn't expect an easy ride from the British tabloid press following his ITV interview, having been highly critical of their role in public life. And if this morning's headlines are anything to go by, the hostility between the two sides looks set to continue. The Sun says his remarks that he had never called the royal family racist was bizarre and a U-turn from a previously incendiary claim. The Daily Mail, uh, the Daily Mirror rather, follows a similar line to the Sun, saying his remarks about the royal family not being racist was a bombshell. The paper also criticised Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for refusing to say in a BBC interview whether he uses private health care. It says there's one rule for Rishi and quotes nursing union leader Pat Cullen is saying the Prime Minister needs to come clean as a public servant. There's more royal coverage in The Times, which focuses on Princess Harry's remarks that royals were complicit in Meghan's pain. But its main page um, is um, carries a dramatic picture of supporter of Ahel Bolsonaro, uh, Brazil's right-wing former president, storming the National Congress in the capital, Brasilia. Bolsonaro's supporters... Uh, 
many wearing Brazilian football shirts atop the National Congress is the lead image in The Guardian as well, which also looks at the UK's health crisis. It leads the article saying the government is now considering a one-off payment, possibly in the form of a hardship payment, to help bring an end to the nurses' strike. The paper's take on Harry's interview is that the prince launched a, bro- a broadside against the king-queen consort Prince William and other royals as well. The eye also leads on the health crisis with what it says it is, is an exclusive, claiming that a quarter of adults go to A&E because they can't get an appointment. It also says that hopes are growing for a settlement to end the nurses' dispute, while its analysis of Prince Harry's interview is that it will deepen his rift with the royal family. The Daily Star claims a medical breakthrough could lead the way for hair to be regrown in bald people. The article quotes, scientists are saying humans are only largely hairless because through evolution they have disabled the caveman gene that would have otherwise leave us with a full coat of hair. Yabadabo hairdo shouts this headline uh, alongside a picture of confused looking cavemen and a beaming bald man. And finally, a photo of two people embracing in the International Arrival Hall at Shanghai Airport in China is the lead image on the front page of Financial Times alongside a story about China reopening its borders on international to international visitors. China is also the key subject of FT's lead story, although it has it's nothing to do with COVID. It says, based on an interview with the U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant General, the article claims that the armies of US and Japan are rapidly integrating their command structures and scaling up their joint operations in the face of mounting Chinese assertiveness, as they called it. So that's a quick look at the headlines this morning. Uh, We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue with the news items of the day before we um, talk about the first uh, topic, which is about... Uh, the uh, ambulance crisis around the country. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. People are asking, who is the gracious God? Gracious God is He who has created the sun 
and the moon for our benefit. The sun with which human life and the life of vegetation is associated. Through the attribute of Rahman, God grants without being asked. Can one say that the sun or the earth was created on account of one's deeds? Rahman is a being that grants beneficence of the kind that man does not have the capacity of giving. It is by virtue of being gracious that all creation receives God's universally prevalent beneficence. Prophets of God summon people to the gracious God for people's own good and not for any recompense. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, states, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the perfect manifestation of Rahman because his beneficence is incomparable. Being the perfect man, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had this quality in him more than anyone else and an ordinary person too should aspire to the paradigm, deriving luminosity from the sun of 1400 years ago. In this age, the promised Messiah on whom be peace has further spread the light, the light of the promised Messiah on whom be peace is from that same gracious God. The quality of Rahmaniyat is pure favor and munificence and is not caused by any good act and is not the fruit or reward of anything. Despite humanity rejecting God, His Rahmaniyat remains overwhelming. If it were not for this divine quality, majority of humanity would have been destroyed because of its misdemeanors and sins. Despite rejecting God, people are asking, Who is the gracious God? Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the U.S. Congress or the 
of the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favour of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that our movement, yours, will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence, and you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show. Um, uh, Imam Shahzib, any, uh, we're talking about the uh, news items appearing um, uh, in the newspapers today. Anything that uh, interests you, particularly this morning? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot happening. Um, yes. I'm sure everybody's heard of the book that the Prince Harry has written and which has been, um, well, leaked effectively in Spain, I think right. it was, yeah. Really? Which, which, which book? Uh, it's called... <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh, no, no, nothing. Just a small right. piece in the newspapers. Right. I mean, I'd say small, but everybody knows of the, mm-hmm. uh, the enormous effect, the ripple effects this will have across um, the board, really, especially for the royal household Um, and it seems as if there's always a bit of a crisis after a couple of years I say crisis but a bit of an issue Um, for those of our avid listeners who are aware of the series called The Crown uh, by Netflix um, they'll be aware of well I guess it's based loosely based on facts um, and on drama Um, but it gives us an insight into the conundrums that mm. the royal household faces and this is nothing short of a conundrum um the book being called spare and various accusations that prince harry has laid upon the royal family and indeed um very recently actually jeremy clarkson the mm. top gear presenter he wrote a very horrific oh, yeah, piece yeah. in the sun that uh, wasn't really in bad taste actually yeah, that yeah. wasn't necessary at all um, and I'm surprised it even got printed, but there you are, freedom of speech, I guess, mm-hmm. and all that is tied with that. But yes, yeah, so that is that. We won't go into the details of um, Spare. I'm sure everybody's well acquainted with the ins and outs of that. Moving swiftly on, single-use cutlery and plates to be banned in England. Single-use items like plastic cutlery, plates and trays will be banned in England, the government has confirmed, and it's not yet clear when the ban will come into effect. But it follows similar moves already made by Scotland and Wales. The Environment Secretary, Theresa Coffey, said the move would help protect the environment for future generations. Campaigners welcomed the ban but called for a wider-ranging plastic reduction strategy. Government figures suggest 1.1 billion single-use plates and more than 4 billion pieces of plastic cutlery are used in England every year. Plastic waste often does not decomposes, we're well aware, 
and can last in landfill for many years. And although it might be useful in terms of food hygiene, it can also end up as litter, in turn polluting soil and water. And each person in England uses an average of 18 single-use plastic plates and 37 items of plastic cutlery every year, according to DEFRA, while just 10% of those are recycled. So a huge change within uh, um plastic usage which will be fantastic in helping and making sure that the, both the environment and indeed their health are taken care of and I think there's a bit of a research perhaps correct me if I'm wrong on these polystyrene um, boxes which fast food restaurants use um, they may or may not have links with um, cancer but mm. I guess that's perhaps a reason why um, they are being rolled out effectively right Various strikes, various uh, issues with our beloved National Health Service. Mm. Um, actually, there being a huge issue with pays, a topic which we'll, we shall be discussing very shortly, or at least a similar topic. Yeah, with respect um, to the ambulance um, drivers and ambulance service. Indeed. Correct. Um, but the the NHS is being offered 250 million pounds to buy thousands of beds in care homes and upgrade hospitals amid a winter crisis so some funds being allocated um but more on that later i guess one thing that i um thought was interesting um it's um carried by the guardian it talks about um uh, the uh, crisis in education. So, according to the Guardian, third of England's teachers who qualified in the last decade have actually left profession. Oh, wow. Um, and this, according uh, to a Labour um, uh, analysis that has been not a Labour Party analysis, but a Labour analysis that has been released, um, as uh, there uh, is um, uh, an attempt to shift towards uh, education. So, with the results of the strike ballots by teaching unions due in the coming days, Labour intends to use a Commons vote this week to push their plan to impose VAT and private school fees, which they say would help pay for new teachers in the state sector. The party wants to use an opposition day on Wednesday to pass a motion intended to be binding that would set up a new Common Select Committee to look specifically at the issue of VAT on private school fees. Interesting idea, I must say. Mm. I mean, they've got to find funds from somewhere, yeah. and especially teachers, one being the the foundations of our society. And if they're running away, well, well in a manner of speaking, then um, that's a poor reflection on where we are heading, and um, that needs to be resolved as soon as possible. Very interesting thought there. You know, I can I can certainly understand the. Um, the idea behind it, but if you um, you know if you look at the flip side, a lot of parents. Um, this is uh, whether we like it or not, a mm. very class-driven society, and a lot of parents want their children to move up uh, the ladder, mm. and they think that um, even middle-class parents they think that sending their kids to private schools um, uh, mm. is one way to do that, and therefore wouldn't it make it very even more difficult for, for people who are already? Uh, it would suffering in the um with the price hikes and um and whatnot yeah no definitely that is a valid point but i guess it just comes down to well then how do they find how do they retain those teachers mm. that um 
are going into the other industries um and it's a difficult difficult balance to sort of sort out here you know on the one hand you want to retain your teachers but on the other you don't really want to make private schooling that much more expensive than it already is you're right i mean these are appalling numbers so yeah. 13% of teachers in england who have qualified since the last general election in december 2019 only two uh two and a half years yeah. ago yeah. uh quit in subsequent two years that's about 3000 in total Gosh. so 13% 3000 teachers have left in the last two years two and a half years mm. i guess it must be a various factor a various number of factors perhaps not only the pay Mm. but perhaps the endurance levels of some individuals are lesser than others when it comes to schooling i mean schooling is an easy job mind you i mean i remember being um people and um you know people's can be challenging to say the least <laughs> um so yeah i mean it's it's something which definitely needs to be addressed um but adding vat to private schooling well i don't know if that's correct um whether or not that will even be passed through parliament but i guess this is one angle that they've thought of at least the labor party yeah. um well we certainly i i i certainly agree with the um with the thought behind the mm. idea that yeah. there's, there there's a crisis yeah. and it needs to be addressed something needs to be done because mm. we cannot allow teachers to leave at the rate that they're currently leaving mm. so something needs uh, to change over there right so um with that let's bring uh, our current affairs segment uh, to an end and we'll uh, we shall take a quick break now and when we come back we shall talk about ambulance waiting times that are causing quite a bit of commotion all across the country and um, and actually deaths in uh, northern ireland as well so do t- mm. do stay tuned <laughs> Azrat Mirza Majroo Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world. flourishing under caliphate the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder the current successor of this movement hazrat mirza masrur ahmed continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind the movement embodies the benevolent message of islam in its pristine purity a movement that preaches peace universal brotherhood and submission to the will of god Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Your faith is dedicated to serving the society that you live in, and from what I've seen, heard and extre- and and experienced from mainstream charities, schools and churches, Your faith and community have contributed in significant ways. I have personally experienced and heard that you have raised tens of thousands of pounds uh, on sponsored walks for children, older people and people with disabilities. You have dedicated yourselves to charitable social projects and most significantly of all, you have not distinguished between faiths, ethnicities or communities. Zaydul 
The community's many social projects aimed at helping those in need bears testimony to humanitarian concerns in respect of all human beings, regardless of race, color, or creed. The Armidian community have an extraordinary reputation abroad for charitable work in Africa, India, Bosnia, and Indonesia, amongst other places. But you'll note, your community here too have an extraordinary reputation. You have been generous with your time and resources, and you have made yourselves part of the wider community. The Ahmadiyya community has always been at the forefront, not only of helping their own, but actually helping within society as a whole, is one of the reasons why, if I may say to you, your presence in this country has been so beneficial to us. In the past hundred years, you have given so much to the society in the United Kingdom and to societies everywhere globally. You are among those who give and who not only take. You give so much to so many societies that I have seen and felt and listened to and watched. Ahmadis are also renowned for working to serve the greater good through social health and educational initiatives as well as mosque projects. Your own work, Your Holiness, particularly in West Africa, is well known. And we heard just now about your attempts to bring water and energy supplies to some of the poorest communities in West Africa. Together, we should fight common enemies such as illiteracy, disease, hunger, and poverty. The Ahmadiyya mission has put structures in place towards the fight against these common enemies in order to enhance the dignity of man. The mission has been a vanguard and a partner in collaborating with government in the areas of education, health, agriculture, and human animation. The Ahmadiyya community, the mission in Sierra Leone, really they've made a pivotal contribution uh, to the education in our country. You just have to look around wherever you are. And I have to say, Your Holiness, that I was touched by the way in which your predecessor as spiritual leader instructed your community, the Amadei community, to befriend and look after those suffering as a result of the Bosnian conflict, and I was very impressed by that. Everywhere that mankind suffers, your members have been active in bringing help and saving lives and limbs. The community was created under divine guidance with the objective to rejuvenate Islamic moral and spiritual values. It encourages interfaith dialogue, diligently defending Islam, and attempting to correct misunderstandings about the religion in the West. I very much welcome this opportunity of paying tribute to the wonderful work which has been done by the Ahmadiyya community towards the objective which we are seeking to promote this evening of achieving peace through understanding and tolerance. The Ahmadiyya community are doing a tremendous job in building bridges between the different communities in our country between different ethnic, linguistic, 
uh, religious groups up and down the country. And I also know that they have a wonderful record in other parts of the world. I'd like to start by saying just how important the work of the Amadea community is. It deepens others' understanding of your own faith and it gives a voice to those who are marginalised in their own societies. Now, what has so impressed me as I have come to understand more about uh, the Amadea faith is your remarkable commitment to interfaith dialogue, your commitment to the principle of non-compulsion in religion, and your commitment to peace and tolerance. You, the Amadees, stand as a beacon in your strong belief that we must find the answers to these debates through open, thoughtful, and gentle discussion. And you are also a beacon because you show us that we must find the answers to these debates through practical action. The Amadea Mission is one religious organization in Ghana which has demonstrated ample tolerance in terms of its preparedness to cooperate with all other religious bodies, Muslim and Christian alike. How good you have been to our community, the community that you found here. Today you reflect so many professions, so many different walks of life. You uphold all the virtues and the vigorous ethics that uh, your faith has given you from birth. At this pivotal point in international relations, many questions and concerns have been raised concerning the doctrines of Islam. Most have incorrectly interpreted Islam as endorsing violence and terrorism. The Ahmadiyya community has always demonstrated the spirit of tolerance, goodwill and true brotherhood. It advocates peace, love and understanding among followers of different faiths. It firmly believes in and acts upon Quranic teachings. It strongly rejects violence and terrorism in any form and for any reason. The movement offers a clear presentation of Islamic wisdom philosophy, morals and spirituality as derived from the Holy Quran and the practice of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad. Peace and blessings of Allah be on him. For me as a student of Islam for now almost 30 years, I am constantly amazed by the depth of service that is certainly represented by this community and tradition, by the depth of tolerance and the constant searching for what it means to be human. To be of human means to be of service. And I think this is so dramatically represented by the message of this community. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. Before the break, we were going over some of the morning papers and seeing what the uh, news articles were reporting on, and we touched upon our first segment which is about the ambulance wait times um, could be causing deaths in Northern Ireland at least. 
And the gist of the story really is around um, the investigation which is happening into the NIAS, the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service, and whether a delayed response contributed to the deaths of eight people in recent weeks. And all eight deaths occurred between the 12th of December and the start of January. The NIAS is treating four of the deaths as serious adverse incidents, which is defined as an incident that led to unintended or unexpected harm. The remaining four deaths are being investigated to see whether they meet that criteria. So from the eight deaths which are being investigated, one of them had to wait for more than nine hours for an ambulance. And unfortunately, this patient's health deteriorated before the paramedics arrived. Hospital staff and ambulance staff have been under severe pressure for months due to shortage of staff and the delay in offloading patients to emergency departments. And it's been a major problem because then they are not available for the next call. There have also been cases where patients have had to wait outside the hospital in an ambulance for eight to nine hours in order to be admitted to the hospital. And after further investigation, the NIAS have found out that the response was not given within the promised time frame. The delays are a major concern, but there are also no solutions in sight for all these issues and pressures being faced by ambulance services and other NHS staff. According to the Ambulance Services Medical Director, Nigel Ruddell, the ambulance service conducts an internal review whenever there is a delayed response to the call and a poor outcome from the call to see whether delays contributed to a death. And he mentioned that the process involves liaising with the family and being open and clear with them about what happened on the day whether it was because of pressures and demand of the day or whether there was something that potentially we could have done better. Mr Roddle said from the 12th to the 24th of December there were five reported cases where a patient died after a delayed response and then there were three more cases since Christmas Eve and he added that ambulance service staff were doing everything to prioritise the most critical cases but that it is leading to a poor experience for some patients. And he said, I recognise the frustration of patients and families who are ringing us, but I have to recognise the tired and exhausted workforce who are coming back from one call and immediately going out to the next emergency and possibly sitting many hours outside a hospital ED waiting to hand over the patient, knowing that more calls are waiting. So... There's pressure upon pressure upon pressure on the NHS and this is just um, circumstances in Northern Ireland. And I guess, you know, I think we can say with some confidence that the similar circumstances are faced here. But I'm yet to read anything on any deaths related to um, delayed, uh, delayed responses or no response really uh, you know I'm, I may be wrong but um, it hasn't yet been picked up so I don't know um, I don't know where how we've arrived here um, I think 
couple of months ago, there was a huge injection of cash into the NHS, mm. um, or at least for the NHS staff. Mm. But that, I think was I think a temporary it, fix. Yeah, I think uh, uh, it's really the years of uh, neglect and years of underfunding, which which is really crystallizing in um, in these stats now, unfortunately. Um, so I think the, uh, it, uh, the 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 funding has been um, uh, had been cut under the previous uh, conservative ad- administrations year on year <clears throat> consecutively uh, in the name of balancing the books for such a long time that uh, despite these uh, you know one off or um, uh, once in a while one should say cash injections the uh, the money is just not there there isn't enough money and unfortunately we see uh, you know we we're just talking about it offline this is a first world country and it's just unheard of i mean it mm. was unheard of where you know 9 hours 8 hours ambulance where the ambulance should really arrive in what 3 to 5 minutes mm. uh, that uh, i think is the uh, is the sort of uh, uh, time that they aspire for, but it's uh, it's very unfortunate that we are. You're absolutely right in in the kind of situation we're in at the moment, and I guess there is no easy uh, way out of this, mm. except for making continuous investments in NHS. As you as you said earlier um, in the program, so the NHS is very dear to all of us. Is is a uh, mm. is something which uh, the whole country it's really the backbone really of our society. Exactly. And yeah. If you don't have the NHS... It's a national asset. Yeah, it's a national asset, 100%. And it's a shame that it is in its circumstances that it is. And, and nurses are, I think we covered this last week, mm. nurses are asking for a pay rise. The current offer isn't, you know, in their eyes at least, suffice. Um, and there's still that deadlock that needs to be broken. Um, I don't know if there's any more strikes. I think there is, perhaps the 19th for our nurses um, so you know you could only hope and pray for a better situation and outcome and it had to be in the winter months you know yeah. where yeah when, when things are at, at a crisis anyways exactly um, and there's that strepe going round children are passing away mm. you know it's um, very much so everything seems as if it's on its head um, and you know, the economy isn't the greatest, so that's perhaps why I think the government are reluctant in, you know, at least going to um, agree with the various directors of the NHS to agree that you know, percentage or in, in, in the pay increase. Um, what are some of the reasons that the ambulance response times are what they are? Well, in England, at least, people are waiting longer than ever for ambulances to arrive. And for the most critical calls with the target response time of seven minutes, patients in 2021 and 22 waited eight and a half minutes on average, almost a fifth longer than they would have waited in 2018 and 19. And for less urgent cases, demand for ambulances has increased. Although the overall number of incidences that require an ambulance response is similar to that in 2018-19. The number of paramedics has increased by 13% since March 2018. But sickness absence, commonly attributed to poor mental health, 
has increased from 5% in March 2019 to 9% in March in 2022, the highest rate of any organization type within the NHS. And although the workforce, the workforce rather has increased, capacity has been reduced because ambulances are waiting longer with patients outside hospitals. In July 2022, more than one in 10 ambulances waited over an hour. And that's up from one in 50 in 2019. And in July 2022, waits exceeding 15 minutes standard reduced ambulance capacity by almost 20%. Because the system is so stretched, small increases in handover times can lead to far greater increases in average response times. And the increase in handover delays is a major contributor to the decline in ambulance performance. The analysis by the Health Foundation suggests that there are three ways to improve the ambulance service performance. The first one they suggest is to reduce handover delays by increasing hospital capacity and flow. And the flow through hospital with more beds, more staff and investment in out-of-hospital care, including social care. The second being to increase ambulance service capacity by further increasing staff numbers and reducing sickness ambulance by addressing the cause or rather causes of poor mental health. And the third being to reduce demand for ambulances through greater investment in community services, such as mental health services, which can prevent health conditions becoming crisis. And they also added that tackling ambulance performance will require further investment in the NHS and social care and a comprehensive funded workforce to ensure services have the staff they need. So this is at least the analysis by the Health Foundation as to the three ways in which um, the ambulance performance can improve. But um, I guess only time will tell as to where we do end up. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but I guess um, it, it just needs to be reiterated that you know, and it just needs funding, funding, and mm. uh, that's something that. Um, I guess is um, is the need of the hour, right? Uh, we are now coming up to uh, the eight o'clock news. Uh, we shall take a break for that, and when we come back, uh, we shall um, continue our discussion on the ambulances, um, ambulance wait times crisis in the country. Uh, we shall close that topic off uh, by talking about the um, the Islamic angle uh, to the topic. Uh, how important uh, provide is in Islam to provide uh, medical-related services uh, to the public. And then from about 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall talk about the second topic of the day, which is about Prime Minister's five promises to the public. So please do stay tuned. Uh, we shall be back after the 8 o'clock news. Allah, Allah, 
أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of allah be upon you welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from uh, the studios um voice of islam studios in south london today is monday the 9th of january 2023 the time is 807 am and we're talking uh, this morning about the ambulance wait times crisis uh, around the country uh, and we talked about uh, that in uh, quite a bit of detail before we went on to the news break um Imam Shahzeb, um, let's now turn to the um, Islamic side of things. Under an Islamic government, what sort of obligations does uh, does an Islamic government or an Islamic society have uh, to provide basic healthcare services like ambulance services, for example? Our listeners will be surprised in knowing that it was Islam in actuality which established and indeed laid the foundations for welfare society and the importance and the rights which are attributed to the sick and the ill were established by islam and there's so much significance in supporting those that cannot be supported or those that have no other means of support by um, those other muslims is indeed a very notable point of our religion the islam as we mentioned established the rights of those who are ill and exempted them from various other uh, obligations that they owe to allah the almighty his holiness the fifth caliph of the amdiya muslim community said that islam also teaches to fulfill the desires of those who are ill Once the holy prophet of Islam and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was visiting someone who was ill and that person expressed their desire for some bread and the holy prophet Muhammad the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that if a person who is ill desires something to eat then an effort should be made to provide that for them Islam also teaches that there is a great reward for those who visit the ill and thus advocates the rights of the ill his illness said there was once someone who wished to see the promised messiah the founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community but was unable to walk due to an ailment in his feet the promised messiah vowed to visit him the next day he fulfilled this promise and visited that person it's recorded that at times those who were ill would go straight to the door of the promised messiah peace be upon him seeking medicine and expressing their grief and sometimes even staying for an hour at a time his earliness said that we have no need to adhere to the standards of rights which are set by worldly people nor do we need to be defensive about our teachings rather we should pr- propagate our teachings of honoring the rights of others so that true peace and harmony can come about in society and it's true that the rights of society cannot be honored until and unless it is accepted that there is one creator of this universe 
and that there is none worthy of worship except him, that no partners should be associated with him. When this is done, and true belief in God is established, then the world can move towards establishing true peace. And His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, said that God has enjoined at every step to honour the rights of his creation. In fact, he said that until we are grateful to our fellow people, we cannot be grateful to God. Thus, Islam presents beautiful teachings of fulfilling the rights of others. And just lastly, the Prophet, may peace be upon him, would not usher the ill away, but instead would listen patiently and attentively. And the Prophet expressed that tending to the ill is also a matter of faith and something which should be something which should not be neglected by true believers. And I think we also have um, perhaps an audio clip about the responsibilities attributed to Muslim doctors. Um, and if we do so, we'll play that for you shortly. I reiterate that all of your members here in the UK, as well as army doctors in other countries, should sacrifice as much time as possible for Vakfiyazi. Whilst doctors from the Vakfino scheme should present themselves to the Jamaat for full-time service as soon as they have completed their training. After these brief words, I wish to present an excerpt of the Prophet regarding the spirit of sincere service of humanity that he desired to see amongst the members of his Jamaat. The Prophet said, Sincerely, uh, sincerity towards others and love for humanity is a part of faith. The definition of the highest moral values is that sincere kindness and sympathy by, uh, be professed towards all humanity without any expectation of reward or recompense. This is what is known a true humanity. The Prophet further states, Allah the Almighty never forsakes those people who hold within their hearts sincere love for humanity. These precious words of the Prophet should be your guiding light and remain etched in your heart and mind at all times. They should, <clears throat> they should uh, underscore the fact that through Allah's grace and mercy alone, you have been able to acquire the knowledge and proficiency through which you can help and serve humanity in a way that others cannot. And so you must utilize 
these scales for the sake of alleviating the suffering of mankind. <clears throat> Thus, it should not be that our Ahmadi doctors utilize their expertise only for the sake of earning the riches of the world or for climbing the professional ladder. Rather, it is imperative that each and every one of you sacrifices a significant period of your lives for the service of the Jamaat by utilizing your expertise and training for the sake of humanity. Only then will you fulfill the rights of mankind according to your capabilities and only then will you be counted amongst those people who have acquired the highest morals as outlined, uh, outlined by the Prophet Islam. <clears throat> At the end, taking benefit of this event, I wish to address not only the members of the medical institution in the UK, but all Ahmadi doctors and medical professionals across the world. Always remember that you must utilize the skills and knowledge you have acquired to fulfill the needs of humanity. <clears throat> As I have said, you should sacrifice your time for the Jamaat <clears throat> rather than only focusing upon your worldly careers. May Allah the Almighty enable all of you to discharge your uh, duties to humanity to the very best of your abilities and to fulfill the expectations of the Prophet and of Khulafa uh, of the Jamaat Ahmadiyya in the very best way. So that was His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, uh, uh, the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, may Allah be his helper, uh, talking about uh, 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 giving um, the Islamic perspective, really, on this all-important issue. And with that, we will bring um, this topic uh, to a close. Um, we shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will move on to the second topic, which is about Prime Minister's five promises that he made a couple of weeks ago. Please do stay tuned. Use your senses to find God. God must be found. Use your ears to hear his sound. Look up, look down, the sky, the ground. Look left, look right, look all around. God is with us wherever we look. He gave us the answers in the perfect book. So recite in the name of thy Lord who created. For your obedience, he has patiently waited. See, God is with you everywhere. The bed, the stairs, the floor, the chair. Don't be disobedient. Please take care. He hears and sees all. Don't forget he's there. So next time you think about committing sin, just remember you're letting the devil in. This life is not just about worldly pleasure. 
the hereafter is where you'll find real treasure. So use your senses and use your sense. Ignorance is not a valid defense. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from uh, the South London studios of Voice of Islam. The time is eight twenty-one, and we are about to talk about the second topic of the day, which is about Prime Minister's five priorities, five promises, or pledges that he laid out for um, um, uh, for his uh, for, for the country really. Uh, back in December. So these pledges are to halve inflation, to grow the economy, to reduce debt, to cut hospital waiting lists, and to stop migrant crossings. Right. Imam um, Shazdeh, you know, the uh, the latter five are um, don't quantify much. So to grow the economy, well, grow by how much? Uh, mm. So, I mean, there's there's... Uh, it's uh, it, it, very general. It's very general. It's very open-ended. Reduce debt. Reduce debt by how much? To cut hospital waiting lists again. You know, there's no solid commitment there. Mm. To stop migrant crossings. Well, that that is is I think is a yeah. Is that's pro- pretty blunt. That's pre- yeah. That's pretty yeah. direct. And 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 there's um, I think. Uh, something we can hold uh, him accountable for, and to halve inflation. That's a really bold one. Yeah. The inflation currently, I think, 14% whereabouts. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, to stop the migrant crisis, which has been, you know, talked about greatly, as long as, uh, alongside all the other ones, 45,000 migrants crossed the channel this year, last year, mm. even. Um, and the number of deaths, which mm. we're all aware of. But the Prime Minister has been very much so adamant on the Albanian gangsters, quote-unquote, mm. who are, um, as a business, um, sending migrants across. And has been very much so on top of trying to prevent that sort of um, criminally organised crime um, to be uh, brought to a halt. Um to cut the hospital waiting lists well what are the current waiting times um, well at least the ambulance services which we discussed earlier on today was between 8 to 9 hours um, but, but to cut them by how much mm. 50% 20% god knows exactly to reduce debt to the grow economy you know they're all very bold statements but if they were ever so slightly more specific <laughs> then we could have uh, effectively cornered the Prime Minister not that we intend to do so um but at least the public would have. And 
He mentioned that currently these five principles are the people's priority and therefore these are the government's priority as well. So I guess only time will tell as to um, how effective he will be in making sure that these promises that he's talked about and he says no tricks, no ambiguity, although there is ambiguity, <laughs> um, we're either delivering for you or we're not. Mm. And we will real build trust in politics through action or not at all. And so I ask you to judge us on the efforts that we put in and the results that we achieve. And he continued in saying people don't want politicians who promise the earth and then fail to deliver. They want the government to focus less on politics and more on the things they care about. The cost of living too high, waiting time to the NHS too long, illegal migration far too much. And he goes on and says, they've in, um, I think people do not accept that many of these challenges are at least in part the legacy of COVID and were impacted by the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But that's not an excuse. We need to address these problems, not just talk about them. Yes, and if I can go back to the uh, to the migrant crossings uh, or stop, stopping migrant crossings uh, pledge, uh, uh, as you said, is it is it really is it realistic for us to um, uh, to to think that these crossings will be stopped? Um, well, how can they be stopped? Border force, the no, border force. Yeah, the, I think the last couple of weeks ago went on strike. Mm. They had to bring in the army. Yeah. over the pay issues. Correct. So so that's one angle, absolutely. But then you talked about just focusing on the Albanian gangs, for example. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, that's just one aspect of the problem. The problem is way bigger because as, oh, you, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, you know, there have been wars um, uh, brought on by, uh, funded by, mm. uh, by this country, unfortunately, mm. which has led to many of these migrants. So a lot of these migrants have come from Afghanistan. A lot of these migrants mm. have come from Yemen. A lot of these migrants have come from Syria. Mm. Uh, and uh, all of these wars, unfortunately, uh, have been funded by the uh, West, by the West, including uh, the United Kingdom. So. Um, so without finding a, a lasting solution to those issues, uh, I mean, you, you just can't uh, close um, close the gate and, and, and hope that the flood won't come in. Hmm. Uh, the flood waters uh, will break the uh, the barrier somehow yeah. if the if the flood is too too large and the flood unfortunately of the migrants because of these issues is large. Everything has a knock on effect and a ripple effect and this is the effect of those wars as you mentioned whereby you know tens of thousands of people mm. are migrating to the UK which I think the UK should be hospitable to these people but um, if they're being trafficked and there's a business um, which there in some circumstances is then that certainly needs to be stopped um, because but is that is is that enough really to stop it? Is is the question I'm I'm asking? Mm. Is is is, is you this can't just stop no, no. Yeah. and and you can never truly stop it because it will always happen. There's all, there's always a way. Mm. Um, I think just last week perhaps I was reading that for the first time border force um, members are on the channels in France on the sort of beaches on France mm. patrolling. 
So, God I mean, knows how it happened. Exactly. I mean, just think about it. Think about the psyche of the of the father. Yeah. Desperate uh, uh, psyche of the father, who is willing to risk the life of um, his uh, months-old son or daughter, mm. um, and is is willing to take the risk of putting his his son uh, or daughter and his other family members in a boat mm. and cross a very dangerous crossing mm. knowing full well that people have died in that oh, in that journey 100% what what is what is going through the mind i mean just just imagine the how desperate mm. he would be how desperate uh, that mother would be they to, have nothing they have nothing left in the lands where they were brought okay, up. Yeah. They so, have so absolutely. So isn't that the what, isn't that that's the, the drive? That's exactly. the drive for the migration. The the idea, at least, for a better life. Okay. The idea, at least, for a better lifestyle. And if it means that there's an element of risk of losing one's life, then okay. I guess that's the price that they are willing to pay because, effectively, they have no other option. And you're right. You know, those countries that destroyed their countries will have to be answerable, at least. Um, if not here, then we as Muslims believe in the hereafter. Yeah. Because every action has a consequence. Absolutely. And, and you know, if you're trying to solve the problem, so, you know, that drive is, is something that you need to look at. Yeah. And you just can't close your eyes and just think that we close the borders and That's therefore yeah. the problem throw, will be solved. Yeah, lock the key and uh, lock the door and throw the key away. Um, and for them to think that, that that door won't be broken is, I think, very much so um, um, taking leave of their senses. Um, so I don't know how this will happen. Um, I mean, they tried the the, the Rwanda scheme and that failed incredibly. Um, so, God knows what their action will be on stopping these migrants from crossing the channel and, and at least um, finding a better life for themselves. And that's the question, you know, will the Prime Minister be able to fulfill these promises? Um, and certainly only time will tell. Exactly. Right, uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about halving inflation. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. On one occasion, this humble one saw, in a state of vision, Surah Al-Fatiha, written on a piece of paper, which was in my hand, and the writing was so beautiful and attractive, as if the paper on which it was written was loaded with soft rose petals beyond count. As I recited the verses of the surah, Many of these rose petals flew upwards, producing a sweet musical sound. The flowers were very delicate, large, beautiful, fresh and full of fragrance. As they ascended, my heart and mind were perfumed with their fragrance, and I felt so intoxicated that the delight that I had experienced turned my heart completely away from the world and all that is in it. This vision indicates that the rose has a special spiritual affinity with Surah Al-Fatiha. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 9th of January, 2023. The time is 8.34 and we're talking about Prime Minister's five pledges. Uh, we've uh, had a discussion on um, 
uh, the, um, uh, uh, the the migrant crisis. And we're about to talk about the inflation now. Halving inflation is the uh, is the pledge that the prime minister has made for uh, this parliament. Uh, Imam Shahzeb, your thoughts? My thoughts are that that's a very bold statement, but again, so are all the others. Um, inflation currently, I think, at 14 or thereabouts percent, um, somewhat unprecedented. Interest rates highest they've ever been for a while, at least since 2008 or thereabouts. And predictions are that at least the interest rates are uh, going to come down um and indeed what we what's been predicted for this year is that the economy will grow and re- will recover and that's we've seen i think a slight improvement on uh, the last couple of months whereby the economy has grown and so naturally as the year progresses the inflation will um the inflation rate will certainly come down and that will tie in with i think the prime minister's pledge here um, and so we can only uh, really s- wait. Yeah. Um, I, I hear you, uh, the question arises though, is, as you said... It's tied in with the cost of living. So if our cost of living, which is tied with our utilities, also comes down, mm-hmm. then there's a heavy chance that the overall picture, economic picture improves again uh, I think the question is about halving I mean there's a very specific number so Mm. uh, so yes uh, economy will probably grow uh, in not expected to grow in 2023 probably in 2024 it it will grow Um, the interest rates are still quite high until the Bank of England sort of uh, is um, uh, is agreeable to bring them down. How realistic do you think is halving inflation? I mean, reducing inflation, probably yes. Halving inflation, do you think that's realistic? I think halving is a, it's very ambitious, should we say, from the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, but he perhaps knows something that we perhaps <laughs> don't. <laughs> let's hope so. Let's, let's hope so. so. Yeah, absolutely. We're on the same side as far as yeah. that's concerned. So absolutely. And so let's hope giving so. him giving the credit that he deserves, yeah. he was a chancellor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, his previous. Well, he's role. a numbers man. I mean, he's, he's a numbers a, man. He's from the. Uh, from he's from the business. square mile, yeah. so he he certainly knows his numbers. Oh, a hundred percent. So he's probably got something up his sleeve. Um, which will certainly help everybody else through the difficult period um, that we are currently going through. I mean, the major issues really being around utilities. I think that's the um, hmm. breaking point for everyone, really. That's uh, a killer, actually. Yeah, I think I was reading the other day, um, somebody reported saying that they had um, just been shown their gas bill um, from November to December. And it was four hundred and eighty pounds for a month. Wow! And that's just your gas. So I think if that improves, um, naturally, everything else should follow suit. Um, right. Uh, I want to um, go back to the uh, argument uh, about stopping migrant uh, crossings. Mm. So is it is it even morally correct? 
to stop migrants crossing the channels or banning, banning channel migrants from claiming asylum, does it not flout our legal and moral obligations? That's a very valid point. Hence why they stopped, I think, that flight from going to Rwanda. There are legalities involved of but, some sort. But the High Court has now allowed it. Has, oh, it has been reissued. Yeah. So well, that's news to me. Um, well, whether or not that happens, because politically speaking, um, I think that won't go down very well for the Conservatives, especially through the um, demolitious period that they have been going through, or rather been through, with the Prime Ministers coming in and out. Um, so, I guess we'll see what happens with that. But yes, those people that are seeking asylum um, and genuinely have a reason to come here, I think I they will be allowed. Don't, don't, don't people have the right to claim asylum? Uh, we have a right to refuse their, their claim, mm. uh, but do people not have the right when they arrive at our shores by however means they do? Yeah. No, once they're here, yeah. they can claim asylum, and that's, I think, all well and good. There's no, there's not an issue. I think the issue really is on the, uh, the issue that the prime minister perhaps is referring to is illegally being trafficked, and as as he put, it, I think isn't it the same thing. So if you arrive in a boat mm. and you arrive at at Dover, mm. uh, then you are um, you're considered an illegal migrant, mm. are you not? Yeah. If, especially if you have an Albanian uh, driver oh, yeah. helping you, yeah. whatever whatever your claim may or may not be. Yeah. So, um, it, and also, there's been an issue with um, the way that they've been treated. Hmm. Um, there's a hate incident yeah. in Dover where somebody threw that petrol bomb or what have you, and it's been a very, um, it's been very different and very strange. Um, because the United Kingdom, we've got to make you know, be very much aware that the United Kingdom um, has welcomed many. Um, people from different backgrounds and races because of its vast empire and well, the past, if anything, because of the Commonwealth. Um, and that's why it's opened its borders to various people. Um, but now for them to take this drastic action of banning migrants all altogether, um, I don't know, that, is, that won't sit well with people, I think, or at least hmm. with um, the majority of people. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, let's talk about uh, the Islamic angle, and and let let's maybe start discussion on uh, on what uh, what does uh, Islam expect from uh, from leadership within mm -hmm. an Islamic society. Uh, the number to call, should you like to uh, join in this discussion, is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. We'll be back right after this short break.
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum Welcome back uh, to this live edition of the Breakfast Show. We're talking about um, uh, Prime Minister's uh, pledges, and um, uh, we were talking about one of them was obviously the the, the migrant crisis. Um, Islam lays great emphasis, Imam Shahzeb, on the rights of uh, migrants. Uh, especially during wartime and, and many of these migrants uh, uh, are actually uh, are migrating because of uh, uh, wars in their um, in their in, in their countries uh, what are those rights that Islam uh, talks about so his holiness the current and fifth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community said that Islam has also established the rights of those at war Often those at war are merely trying to enforce their might. And though they claim to fight for the rights, they are usurping the rights of others. Now, Islam Islam gives permission to fight. And it's only and solely for the purpose of establishing peace and religious freedom. It's stated within the Holy Quran in chapter 22, verse 41. Those who have been driven out from their homes unjustly only because they said our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel some people by means of others, they would surely have been destroyed. Cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques wherein the name of Allah is often commemorated. And Allah will surely help one who helps him. Allah is indeed powerful and mighty. So, Islam states that if men were left free, then religion would be destroyed altogether. And so Islam enjoins justice as it is stated in the Holy Quran. And so His Holiness stated that whenever the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, appointed a general or commander, he would advise them to act with righteousness, to be fair and just not to transgress, and if the opponents laid down their arms and cooperated, to cease fighting. And it's also recorded that our Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said um, and that he would enjoin an envy, um, and rather uh, departing, that they should strive to establish compassion. So the envoy that would leave, he wanted them to establish compassion and there should not be um, such an attack until they have first invited the opposition or rather the opposing party towards peace and he would also instruct that no children, women or elderly people would be harmed. His illness stated that these days people raise allegations against Islam yet the same people carry out air raids, destroying hospitals and schools, or end up harming and killing innocent people. And yet the teachings of Islam are to foster peace and fulfill the rights of others. His Holiness said that even at times of war, Islam has established the rights of opponents. Islam forbids Muslims from mutilating or humiliating the bodies of those opponents killed in battle. And furthermore, Muslims are instructed not to act deceitfully in battle 
Women, children and elders should not be harmed. And when going into another city or country for battle, the residents and citizens should not be harmed or terrorized, as is done by those who invade countries these days and carry out air raids. The faces of opponents should not be harmed. The prisoners should be tended and cared for, and given the same things to eat and wear as one eats and wears themselves. Similarly, Islam teaches not to destroy buildings or cut down fruit-bearing trees. So there's a number of prerequisites, should we say, um, for warfare, for at least what Islam promotes and suggests. And if we do look at the war-torn countries, um, there being a fair few currently these days, in all of those countries where war has been raged, there's been a number of citizens and civilians, innocent citizens and civilians, who have paid the ultimate price, unnecessarily, may we add. And not just uh, the elderly, but also women and children have sadly been um, collateral damage, as it's usually referred to, to these um, devastating wars. And all of this is absolutely uh, rejected within the core principles of Islam. And it just shows you the the forward-thinking religion that Islam is. 1,500 years ago, these teachings were parts of this religion. And even in today's 21st century society, you know, where we claim to be very much so modernized and um, claim our rights in an instant. You know, these very basic, very common sense rights aren't being distributed and aren't being implemented, should we say. And various citizens and indeed innocent people are killed. And when it comes to the question of migrants, um, those fleeing from these war-torn countries, where the end goal really is, where wherever these wars are happening, you know, it's only for, um, there isn't a, a greater outcome, it's only really for self-gain. Wherever um, you look in the Middle East or parts of Africa, or nowadays in Eastern Europe, um, Islam only permits warfare for either defensive strategies or for establishing freedom of religion or freedom of practicing religion. And currently, nowadays, we don't see any of that, well, at least in those countries where war is being raged. Um, so that's why it's very much so important that we allow those migrants that do want to flee those territories for them to come to better lands, lands where they can flourish and succeed and indeed bring about productivity and all sorts of prosperity to a nation which is foreign to them. So that's in itself a very much so difficult scenario to be in. To leave your own land isn't an easy task by any means. It takes a great amount of courage to lead, to leave your uh, country and everyone and everything that you've ever known. So I guess perhaps if the if the situation, or at least if the 
um, circumstance as well on the other side. So we were in their shoes. We would uh, definitely think differently. Um, but it isn't, and so we don't. Absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Shazeb. And with that, um, we come, um, we bring this topic and today's show uh, to an end. Uh, I must thank uh, Imam Brother Shaz- Imam Shazeb, uh, my co-presenter, as well as the entire production and um, uh, um, and the tech team. Thank you very much uh, to producer Thaimin Hachima, as well as uh, excellent tech support from uh, Mr. Akib. We shall be back um, next Monday. And there will be another live edition of The Breakfast Show tomorrow morning. So do tune in for that. Until next week, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.